Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest will be Kitty Robinson, who is president and CEO of the historic Charleston Foundation, and she's also chair of Charleston's Tourism Management Plan Committee. Kitty, welcome back to the Journal. Thank you very much. Let's talk a little bit about Kitty Robinson. How long have you been at the historic Charleston Foundation? I've been fortunate enough to be here this entire new century. I started in the year 2000, so I've been at Historic Charleston for 14 years. Oh, wow. That makes you next to Francis Edmonds, the longest-serving head of the Historic Charleston Foundation. Yes, it does. Okay. Now, how did you get appointed to this other job? This sounds like a job that would give you gray hair or make you want to pull out your hair. Managing tourism, which is the mainstay of Charleston's economy. It's actually a very natural position for Historic Charleston Foundation to be in as we as an organization were involved in the formation of the first tourism management plan in 1978, and we've been parts of the updates both in 1994 and 1998. So we've sort of been with the city all along in this regard, and we're an organization who understands and believes in good growth, and we see this as part of something that we can perhaps be very helpful for the residents, the visitors, and for the city. Back when the first time in the 70s when Historic Charleston was involved, they used to advertise Charleston as America's best-kept secret. The latest figures I got on tourism, and I think these are for last year, was 4.83 million visitors. And you were ranked once again by Condé Nast as America's most attractive city, most visited city. You'd fallen a little bit on the world. You were only the fifth city in the world. And need to let people understand where what you're talking about. You've got San Miguel in Mexico, Florence, Italy, not South Carolina, Budapest, Salzburg, and then Charleston. That's pretty heady company. Absolutely. And when the some of these great accolades came by way of the, the not only the magazines, but the friendliest city in America and those kinds of accolades that have been placed on Charlton, we've asked the same question about how were we really number one in the world. And we asked that specifically and learned that the opinion was that there was so little major conflict in Charleston that most everybody seemed to be on the big same general page and they didn't see a lot of major conflict, which we thought was was interesting. We always are discussing different <laughs> issues in Charleston, but um, in the I guess in the world they're not major conflicts. Let's maybe go back you know, you said that historic Charleston been involved really for forty years almost 50 years in terms of this particular uh, management plan. And for some folks, we talk about management. That sounds like regulation, laws. You've got resident interests. You've got tourism interests in terms of hotels, restaurants, guides, what have you. You've got cruise lines. A lot of folks you've got to take into consideration. Absolutely. Historic Charleston Foundation was was founded in 1947, and so in the spring of 2015, we'll be celebrating with our 68th annual Festival of Houses and Gardens. The reason I bring that up is because at that time, um, in 1947, when we were creating this opening of houses and gardens for the public to visit in the spring with tickets— That was sort of the season, mid-March to mid-April. While we think that is still one of the most beautiful times to be in Charleston, we're really a year-round city now. If you were to say, oh, we'll come to Charleston during the season, that season has really grown into a 12-month season. We are so busy all year round, and that's something that the visitors and mostly the residents have really felt. And Historic Charleston Foundation having this 
annual festival of houses and gardens makes us a player in the arena of attracting visitors to Charleston. And so, again, it's just very natural that we should be here. And we do see so much growth, growth in the tourism industry, and frankly, growth in population. Hordes of people are moving to Charleston, and we're feeling that impact as the city is is growing. And as you know, we're a peninsula, so we need to grow either up or out. And because of our wonderful height limitations, there's not much room to go up. So the city is is expanding, and we're everyone is feeling that that growth. And just it's a good time to relook at how our residents are enjoying a quality of life and how the visitor experience affects or enhances or maybe it sometimes is a little too much for the great quality of life for the residents. Well, as someone who has visited Charleston regularly since 1965 and researched, I would say you might use King Street as a barometer. The late Anna Wells Rutledge, and you may... I think Anna had died before you came to Charleston, but she was quite a Charleston character. She used to say that nobody went on King Street anymore in 1966 or 67 because if you got down, walked one block without getting your purse snatched, you were it was a victory. And then, of course, that began to change in the 70s and 80s. Some stores stayed, new stores came, and then there was Calhoun Street. Nothing was north of Calhoun Street. Now it keeps going block by block by block. It really is at least a commercial barometer of Charleston's rejuvenation. Absolutely. And Anna Rutledge-Wells' reputation and her um, quotes have certainly succeeded her and um, very understandable. Our first director for Historic Charleston Foundation was Francis Edmonds, who had a similar quote to Anna Wells Rutledge when she talked of King Street. She said the sick spine of the city is King Street. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I think um, to what Anna Wells was referring to. And we look at that now, and so much of that is attributed to a long, really, it was a long discussion, sometimes a battle. And it was for, during the formation of what was to become originally named the Charleston Convention Center. And for 10 to 15 years, there was huge discussion in the city whether to have this enormous building complex come right into the middle of the city. And, of course, we look at Charleston now and know that that Charleston place now is called Belmont, is the real center of where the city and King Street became almost a mecca. And thank goodness it is there. And the transformation of King Street is one we have watched. And as you mentioned, now we can almost see its growth daily in the upper parts of King Street above Calhoun. It's just such a popular and busy all times of the day street. And And, and it's not just restaurants and that sort of thing, but there's a computer company that bought three stores or three storefronts there on on Upper King. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Well, and, and you mentioned the um, computer company. That it's a, there's a tech industry that is growing rapidly. We are now calling the tech industry in Charleston. It was named the Silicon Harbor by Nate DePore, who is the president and CEO of People Matter, which is the company that has moved to King Street and has its headquarters there and has bought a building across the street and next door and is a thriving part of King Street and a thriving part of the of the city in general and especially the tech industry where Nate Dupore is a just known leader in that in that arena. So it is business it is entertainment. As far as entertainment by that, I mean restaurants and shops and bars. The, the King Street is highly populated at all times of the day and into the night. 
and there are a couple of very wise merchants who hung under their properties all these years. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Mars Sokol Furniture mm-hmm. is right there, has been there, is a you know, is just a real icon on the on the street and it I understand it's flourishing as it should be. Yeah. Well, you mentioned people moving there, and as some listeners know, I'm I'm a squash player, and I, I'm a member of the Charleston Squash Club. Most of those men and a few women are from off. They're in, and they're coming. They're they're in construction. They're in engineering. They're in finance, technical services. But they've come to Charleston and relocated there. Not necessarily. I guess you know, with with technology, you don't have to be in New York City to do your job. And these folks. They love the place. I mean, that's that's now become their home. We have felt such a positive influx from the people who have moved here, the people f- that we love to call from off, and it's taken as a compliment, we hope, to those, <laughs> to those people because of what they so many have done to add to the to the culture of Charleston those so many of those people have been affiliated with many of the not-for-profit organizations our our symphony our museum historic charleston foundation the gibbs they've taken such an interest first in the history and then the art and culture and it seems to me that they have moved to charleston because of all that Charleston has to offer. I think the first thing would be that quality of life. Mm -hmm. And it still seems, I think these are the right statistics, that people come to visit Charleston first for history. And getting really close to history is this food. And so with the culture that is so prevalent in Charleston, one can do most anything that he or she wants you could one could go out every night and go to something that is educational and cultural and mostly enjoyable of course all of that has had an impact certainly on residential housing Absolutely, it I mean, has. There are two or three places I know on on State Street when I was a graduate student Anna Well said you and your wife just want to buy one of these places and it was $28,000, and I didn't have $28,000 in 1966. <laughs> and that same property sold for well over a million dollars recently. And that, that is not un- unusual. The living, living on the peninsula, and especially downtown closest to the Battery, I guess, is a, a very expensive prospect. And that has its really good points and some rather sad points that – it's not accessible to every everyone, but the people who live in those houses take such pride in being part of the community and keeping those houses up, which again is no easy task. So many of the houses are are big, important properties that take a lot of care. So there's a lot of responsibility and, that goes on with that. And not all of them are brick or stucco. Some of them are wooden in that in our climate, that is a very, you know, that's about every second or third year paint job. The paint, absolutely. Um, they, I don't think you, one could ride down a street in Charleston and um, below Calhoun Street and not see houses under construction mostly being painted. So that is that's ongoing, absolutely. Well, uh, Neil and I have a friend, and I won't say who, but um, every year he paints a side of his house. <laughs> He's not alone. <laughs> he said he couldn't couldn't do it all at once, but he just there's always a paint job going on. And mostly, you do the front first, yes. and then you work back around and return to the front a few years a few years later. Absolutely, yes. Let's get since we're talking about people living there. Let's talk about the tourism management plan because I always yes, it's wonderful to have have tourists, and you know I've talked about tourism abroad, and I guess one of my favorite cities is, is Venice, and what has happened to Venice is just, it's sad. I mean, it's just overrun, and we have some friends who live there part-time, and they just say it's, it's life is not pleasant anymore in Venice. One of the things we're really focusing on in this tourism management plan advisory group 
is the quality of life for the residents. And I do think that is that is first. I think that is a major, major consideration. And the mayor, in his wisdom, when in, in creating this committee, was so careful to be inclusive, as he always is, in the membership of this committee, this Tourism Advisory Committee. And within the committee, there are representatives, first of all, from the from the Tourism Commission. There are members, many members from the, I would say, the tourism business, people who own carriage companies and the and, and give tours and um, walking tours and driving tours, carriage companies, the heads of the of the restaurant association, hotel owners, of course the convention and visitors bureau is a is a big player on the committee, along with the residents and several representatives, many representatives from the different neighborhoods that are below Broad Street, which is the which is the the key area where most people who are visiting want to see. So there's a great diversity and good combination of people who are addressing the the issues in a very healthy manner. So there's a a wonderful group who is dealing with this. The tourism management group was formed in in January of 2014. I think the first meeting of the for the public was in February. There have been subsequent meetings, and the plan is for the general plan is that the work of this committee through its subcommittees and then the committee itself to present another tourism management plan to the city by de- by December so that the city council will have a plan which we hope will be will go to city council and be accepted there. You have public meetings and I know when you have a public meeting in Charleston you usually have a big turnout. We do have a big turnout and a, a lot of the people who have the biggest concerns are the ones who come to the meetings and that's another thing I credit the mayor with this he's always done this is He's really listening, as are the other people on the on the on the committee and the people who have the businesses that maybe people have some questions about. But we've been very, very inclusive of the public. When the committees meet, the both the subcommittees where much of the work is being done now, and then the bigger committee, the public is always in, invited and invited to speak at the end of the meeting. And we've had very good attendance that we appreciate very much from the public. Kitty, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that I'm talking to Kitty Robinson, who's president and CEO of the Historic Charleston Foundation, and she's also the chair of the city's Tourism Management Plan Committee. Kitty, we've got this committee that represents a broad spectrum of interests of Charleston. What are some of the concerns and issues that have been raised, particularly by the residents on that committee and at the public hearings? To put that in two words, I would say the concerns are about too much. And those are two words we've heard many times, too much visitation, too many visitors, too many buses, carriages, too many. But I think so much of that is based on areas that we really can help regulate. And by regulation, I don't mean cutting back, but really just looking at how to better manage the visitors, how to better manage the the carriages, the walking tours, those kinds of things. The traffic always comes up, and we've been fortunate to be able to bring in, in conjunction with the City of Charleston and Historic Charleston Foundation, we've invited Gabe Klein, who is a national transportation expert, to come and speak to the public about transportation mobility issues he was in Charleston in the summer. He will he will be in Charleston in the fall and bring back his suggestions on how to manage the traffic. Traffic and parking always come up in every discussion. Sometimes the residents feel 
displaced when perhaps the parking places in front of their houses, especially if they don't have off-street parking and are unable to park on their streets. That's that's one thing. And of course, you're dealing with streets that can't be widened and were not designed for automobile traffic. They certainly weren't designed for tour buses. Now, in some European cities, they have limited areas where tour buses simply it's a matter of safety. Turbos can't go down Beden's Alley. <laughs> right. Well, there there are very good and strict regulations about motor coaches. Motor coaches, that's the name of the big okay. over-the-road buses. And actually, I think everybody would realize that they are out of scale with an historic city. However, they are managed very well in that a, a visiting bus knows the route that it must take in going downtown. And it's, it's an external way of going around Murray Boulevard and up East Battery and down Broad Street, and no motor coaches are ever supposed to be on streets like Beden's Alley or Price's Alley or even down King Street. And that's one of the transportation issues that people think about. And one of the very good things that has already happened with this tourism management plan is the need for a good regulation. And just in the month of September, three TEOs have been trained. The TEO is a tourism enforcement officer, not police officers in the in the strictest sense of the word, but they are walking and riding bikes downtown, and they have on uniforms. They have a, a nice navy blue shirt and khaki pants, and their titles are on the back of their shirts, and they are Also, they're serving as ambassadors and really trying to be helpful to the visitors where they park to show them where the restrooms are. Restrooms always come up as a point of discussion. There are very few public restrooms in the lower part of the city. These tourism enforcement officers will become official and they will visit all the neighborhood associations, introduce themselves, explain what they're doing. And that's something to the great credit of the city that they've already been hired at the suggestion of this group. And we think that will be a great addition to help manage part of this tourism. Okay. One of the things Charleston has, and you talked about folks couldn't park in front of their homes, but you do have restricted residential parking now. Yes. And in different areas, the hours are different. In Harleston Village, for instance, the whole area is um, is restricted to the one-hour the one hour parking. And with that, the neighbors say that that is the best thing that ever happened to Harleston Village because the students cannot really park on the streets, and that's a real issue in that area. Other areas have two-hour parking, and new two-hour parking places are now on Murray Boulevard on one side of the street. There might be other places where parking can become more restrictive, and that is something that one of these subcommittees, the Traffic and Transportation Subcommittee, is looking at. There are lots of parking garages in the city, though. They have, I think, been built to blend in rather nicely with the rest of the cityscape. Right. With with more credit to the mayor, he said we virtually we don't need a parking garage that looks like a parking garage. So, Walter, many of the parking garages look as if they're office buildings. And people in Charleston, our own residents, are learning that that is a fine place to park. I think it used to be years ago you could find more parking on King Street or other downtown streets. But parking garages are necessary, and we're trying to make them much more available as far as just being able to know where they are. That's something that is being said more often now at the at the visitor center when people come to first to the city and they are it's recommended, first of all, that they walk as much as they can and they're made aware of where parking garages are. When I was teaching historic preservation I said the only way to enjoy Charleston is to walk. It's just fun. That's something that we at Historic Charleston Foundation promote all the time. The best way to see the city 
is to walk. And the one caution we always say is you really must look at the the roof line and look at this fabulous architecture and the authenticity that you see in that. But the best thing you do in walking is to stop and then look up. <laughs> and we we recommend the, the walking, and there's so many more walking tours now with our licensed city guides. And that's another group and another entity that was regulated a few years ago that walking tours and guides and the guides must wear their licenses. Um, They're licensed by the city. They are always to wear their name badges and the groups are limited to 20 people. And that's one thing that we understand is being discussed in this management advisory committee. Perhaps they'll reduce the number of people but slightly who can be on a walking tour just to make sure there's room on the sidewalk for everybody. As a teacher, that's a, pre- that's a pretty large group to manage. Yes, and it's hard for someone on the, on the street physically because they're outside to make a voice heard mm-hmm. for 20 people, and not all of our sidewalks are conducive. They're not wide mm-hmm. enough to have a group of 20 people surround a guide. So that is something one of the committees is, is looking at. Okay. We've looked at residents. What are concerns that those in the hospitality industry have? It's very interesting because the groups that are the special events groups, the visitor orientation groups within these subcommittees are talking about the hospitality industry. You mentioned earlier the numbers of hotel rooms, which have also grown exponentially, and plans are for further growth. That's a subject that this committee is addressing this fall. And the subcommittees have been such the working part of this whole study. And these committees are functioning as we speak about all of these different special events and visitor orientation. And you talked about special events. The garden tour in the spring, that month when the azaleas bloomed. Of course, Charleston used to have an azalea festival at one point. Right. And Somerville still does. Yes. (laughs) But now it's year-round. I mean, you've got so many special events. I mean, right on the heels of what you call the spring tour season, you've got Spoleto. You've got the Southeastern Wildlife. You've got the Wine and and Food Festival. Is there a month when you don't have a special event going on in Charleston? I'm not sure there is that month. <laughs> that there are there are months when there are more special events than others, primarily in that spring season. One of the committees is specifically looking at special events and one of the goals of this committee is to have a major community calendar so that events like the Cooper River Bridge Run and the Azalea Festival in Somerville and the cruise ships might be coming on that day. We really are looking for huge coordination from the beginning, years out in advance, so all of those things will not happen on the same weekend, and everybody has a responsibility for that. You mentioned the cruise ships, and I know that's a sore subject for some Charlestonians. Charleston has become a major port. Actually, it has always been a major port. It was the port that made Charleston what it is, and it's such an economic boon to the city. The the cruise ship issue brings just another dimension, and there are committees all over the city who are working toward, again, I refer to this delicate balance of what is enough, what is too much. Is there a way to keep the cruise ships as a good part of Charleston's economy? The Post and Courier had an editorial back in May, and it talked about your committee. Of course, you were well underway by that. But they recommended that the committee look at Bye Bye Barcelona, a film about what tourism had done to Barcelona. Did y'all look at it? I think some people have, and I, I really I think it's a, a very good thing to look at and for a real example of when is too much, way too much, and how does Charleston keep from becoming that. And 
honestly, that is part of why we are having this tourism management study, because we don't want to become a city that people don't want to visit because it is too crowded. Again, I bring up the residents who are especially thoughtful about the quality of life and retaining and enhancing the quality of life for the not only for the residents but to provide a good experience for the visitors but there there are limits to that another issue that i'm fairly sure has been raised because we talked about the cost of housing in downtown charleston and that is the phenomenon of trophy houses where people will come in from somewhere and I've seen the advertisements, 5 and $6 million for a house in Charleston, and they may have six other houses. They don't even really live in Charleston. It's just there. You can't do much to stop that. In my opinion, I don't feel that as much as I did a few years ago. There was a big effort to, quote, keep the lights on mm-hmm. because people were feeling as when you were walking down the street that no one was home. What we have really seen is so many of the... There are a lot of second homes in Charleston. We see those second homes more and more becoming the primary residence of these people who have chosen Charleston, have lived there for perhaps the fall months and the spring months, but perhaps go elsewhere in the summer. We're finding that they're extending their stays from three months to six months to nine months and and changing their residences to their primary residence to Charleston. I had this discussion a while back with a friend and resident of Charleston and had to remind her that when many of those houses were built before 1860, they were only occupied part of the year anyway. So the Charleston she was thinking about is the Charleston she grew up in when everybody had to stay in Charleston year-round. But you had St. Paul's Church, originally St. Paul's Radcliffe, was called the Planters Church. You know, that's for the people who live there part-time with. I will say that Charleston, I think, is at its slowest, if slowest can even be a word, when you talk about people in Charleston, I think that August is a month where many people choose to go elsewhere, where perhaps the climate is a little cooler and less humid. Yet, it is a year-round city, and it's um, it's become, again, these the people who have their second or third houses have been so additive to the community in support of so many of the cultural organizations that there's a there's a, again my favorite two words are the delicate balance and that's what we're trying to keep i will say that some people think that the delicate balance has already tipped and that we're losing a little bit of that good residential quality of life again this committee is a, is addressing that to make the residential quality a great quality. We understand why so many people want to visit. It's so understandable. They visit and then they often visit again and the next step is um, buying a house. Mm-hmm. That's not a piggly wiggly on Broad Street anymore. <laughs> we, we miss that. We miss that piggly wiggly. Well, you know, that again, that's as cities rejuvenate. They frequently don't want the stores, the everyday things that were part of a community life, whether it was tavern downtown or a grocery store or a drug store, the kind of things that people need. Now, you do have some of that. I mean, but it's sort of on, on the periphery now, isn't it? It's not. Well, it, it is a little bit. And just on the um, on that very subject, we have an influx of millennials in, in Charleston, those who are of the generation who really don't want to have a car. They don't need a big place to live. They want to be able to live, work, and play in the same area, and they are able to do that. More and more people are not having cars, riding their bicycles, particularly these millennials, many of whom are coming to work in the tech industry or who have graduated from the College of Charleston and 
absolutely do not want to leave <laughs> this wonderful city. They're staying, living in smaller places, walking to the grocery store, walking to a restaurant. There are a few corner stores left, thank goodness. There's there's Burbage's on Broad Street, which has been reinvigorated with new owners, and they have a thriving business that, again, is right downtown. And there are other corner stores that are popular, and we see lots more bicycles, which is which is very helpful and also something that's being studied by this committee is how do we best incorporate mobility for not only the people who live there, but for the people who are visiting. Okay. Kitty, we need to pause again to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Kitty Robinson, who's president and CEO of the Historic Charleston Foundation, and we're talking about Charleston's Tourism Management Plan. So bicycles, narrow streets, lots of cars, safety issues. Do you actually have bike lanes on, on streets now, or is that part of what you're looking at? We do have bike lanes, and we know there is need for more bike lanes. We actually have bike corrals. Some were installed over the summer on King Street. Tell me, what is a bike corral? A a bike corral is literally a parking space that used to be a parking space perhaps for a car, that length. And in that parking space will be a bicycle rack that can house six bicycles. And they're in, in smaller areas. There's There are several on King Street now. And in the smaller areas, there are fewer bike racks. But in other places and other streets in the city, there are bigger bike racks, lots more near the College of Charleston. And so those bike corrals are going to become a part of Charleston. And bike lanes, and there's a really, there's a need for more education for all bicyclists. There's a wonderful group called Charleston Moves, who is a a not-for-profit group with the new executive director. Tom Bradford has headed that for years and has really promoted bicycling as a way to to navigate the streets of Charleston. Bicycling is a is a subject that is being talked about in Charleston all the time now. There's such a need for education for everyone riding bikes. If if we want Charleston to become a city that is really bicycle friendly, Everybody needs to follow the rules, and there's a a real bent toward making that happen. Okay. And let's talk about public safety. From Anna Wells Rutledge's sad commentary back in the 60s, that began to change in the 70s. It really began to change when you had Chief Greenberg. We have a great police chief, Chief Mullen, who has his officers on the streets. You can hardly walk down a block in the city, and I'm really talking King Street and Upper King Street, and now we have these tourism enforcement officers who are virtually serving as ambassadors for the city. They have their eyes and ears open all the time. Public safety is its a concern, but it's one that is really being very, very carefully planned by um, Chief Mullen and and his officers. I think public safety is a concern everywhere. Of course. I don't really think, this is my opinion, I don't think there's a giant problem there because we have great enforcement and, and police presence, and especially with these tourism enforcement officers who will be walking everywhere in downtown Charleston and will be able to recognize people. They will know the neighbors. They will be helpful to the visitors and and help the visitors know not to um, not not to cross the streets when there's not a crosswalk and those kinds of things. Yeah, that's that's a problem everywhere. With, <laughs> and residents sometimes are the worst offenders. <laughs> I, um, I might have to agree with that. <laughs> um. Well, let's get back to your home organization. What's in store for Historic Charleston in the 2015? I'm so glad you asked that. We're at a, a wonderful place in our in our history. We're almost 70 years old. 
we feel as if our organization is a vibrant part of the city of of Charleston. We are looking forward with our revolving fund. We have something called the Francis Edmonds Revolving Fund, named for our first founder. All right, let's explain how that how that works. And the revolving fund buys threatened houses and puts them up for sale looking for a preservation-minded buyer who will buy the house and protect it with easements, covenants, and that historic Charleston will then become a co-steward for that property. But we're really looking in the central parts of the city for neighborhoods where we can make a difference. We have partnered with the city of Charleston and and the Habitat in Charleston, and we've bought several smaller houses, which we have in conjunction with the city and Habitat rehabbed. And the um, a resident of that neighborhood has been able to move back in to that house, and we've seen a specific street, Romney Street, have huge neighborhood interest in rehabbing the street. We've just, in conjunction with the New Israel Church and and the city of Charleston, created a the, what we're calling the Romney Urban Garden, where we've put a fabulous garden at the dead end of Romney Street, and that one area we can already see improving and improving for the residents who've always lived there. We're really looking at maybe even doing another Ansonboro, which was a huge project that the Start Charleston Foundation took on in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and brought a neighborhood back by buying a house, selling it to a preservation-minded buyer, then buying another house and another house, and it really did improve and make fabulous an entire neighborhood. One of the things we're doing. And, of course, you'll have your annual tour of homes and gardens and antiques show. We do that in March, mid-March to mid-April. We are so pleased to be able to continue to do that. We are so grateful to the 100 or so owners of houses and gardens who are willing to open their houses to the public. The public buys tickets to come and view these private houses and gardens, and the money that we make from those is reinvested into our important preservation initiatives. So we're really looking forward, as always, to the spring. You've got 100 houses and gardens on tour? We do. Over a, over a month-long period, it's really about 150 properties when we include churches and some public buildings. So with 700 volunteers who work to show those properties. It's really a huge undertaking and one that we're very proud to be able to present for the city and to and to the visitors. Amazing. 150 properties, 700 volunteers. That's an incredible undertaking. It is. We, we are so fortunate to be able to have our board of trustees and our staff work together to promote and put this festival we've had we have a great deal of repeat visitation it's a wonderful way for people to come and walk we all love the walking of the city and walk from house to garden and see how it is that people live in these charleston single houses and and live downtown and how urban living really can have such a great quality to it it shows a lot of authenticity about our city. Kitty, I think one of the things you see on the on the tours and with both the houses and and the gardens, gardens are something that's very close to my heart, is the number of folks who have come in and, for example, utilized the records at the Historical Society, the Latrell Briggs plan, for many Charleston gardens which had changed over the years and have really recreated a pre-World War II landscape designed to be historic. We are so proud of the gardens in Charleston. Years ago, when the Festival of Houses started, that was the name of the program in the spring, 
it became increasingly obvious that gardens were such a part of the landscape that we renamed the festival to the Festival of Houses and Gardens. We're so proud of the two gardens that we own at the Aiken Red House in Charleston in Mazik Ragborough and the iconic Russell House on Meeting Street. We're working on landscape plans for that garden. It's The Russell House is the most visited museum house in the city, and the public is invited to come and visit the house and the garden and to see, again, that wonderful landscape in an urban setting. When I first was acquainted with Historic Charleston, you had the Nathaniel Russell House. Now you've got your headquarters down on East Bay. You've got the old filling station You've got a place on Broad Street. How many properties do you actually that are actually part of the operation, as it were, of Historic Charleston now? We're very proud to have five properties: the Russell House on Meeting Street, the Aiken Red House in um, in Mazik Ragborough. There are two museum houses. We have, as you said, the old gas station is our. Francis was our Francis Edmonds Center, which is now a, a, a retail operation for our reproduction products and our retail and our newest location, in addition to our headquarters at on East Bay Street, is we were asked and we have the anchor store in the in the city market. And in in recent years when the market part of it was in enclosed, the portion closest to Meeting Street our shop that is the anchor shop for the interior parts of the market is right there. It's the first thing that people see when they come into the market where we have authentic Charleston reproductions and products that are all Charleston related to its history, architecture, and culture. Let's get back to the management plan. Anything you'd like to say about that? And it's such a sensible thing for a city to do that maybe others should emulate it. We do have other cities who are looking to Charleston to watch how we conduct this whole tourism management survey. We're so fortunate, survey and um, and actually action, that we're so fortunate to have the, the city staff who is staffing every part of this entire operation. And we feel as if we have all the right entities participating primarily the public. When we say to the public, we really want your input, we have that input. We have hundreds of email addresses, and people can follow the work of this committee and have been following it through these months by going on the city website and looking up the work of the group. And once the subcommittees, which will be which will be making the most decisions, we will, are looking forward to being able to produce another tourism management plan following the 1978, the 1994, the 1998, and we hope to accomplish not only what those original plans were set out to do, but to have a, a more inclusive and effective tourism management plan. And you have to deal with a city that's quite different. As remember, 1970, Charleston was advertised as America's greatest secret. Uh, and she had that beautiful skyline shot taken from the old Fort Sumter Hotel yes. of, the, of the cityscape. Charleston is not undiscovered today. Number one tourism city in the United States, fifth in the world. you got to have the management plan. We are no longer a secret for certain, and because we're not a secret and we are so popular, we want to be very certain that Charleston keeps its authenticity and is relevant as an historic city. We keep that, and we look forward to growth in the most appropriate manner of the city. Kitty Robinson, president and CEO of Historic Charleston Foundation and the chair of Charleston's Tourism Management Plan Committee. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you very much for having me.
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I don't envy Kitty Robinson for her task of having to look at the delicate balance of residents and tourists. Almost 5 million visitors a year. Now stop to think about that. A city that has just about 100,000 residents, 5 million people, not just in the spring as it used to be, but year-round. So how do you deal with all of those folks the motor coaches, the bicyclists who are there, the residents who can't find a parking place. It's really a delicate balance is the term she used. And a key part of that, certainly here in the 21st century, have been innumerable public hearings so that those most affected by any management plan have input. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal. The armistice occurred when there were no enemy forces fighting their way into Germany. So from a certain perspective, it seems natural to think, well, hang on, we've been told for years and years that we're doing well, we're winning, and now suddenly we've lost. How did that happen? Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, Friday at noon. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's journal are their own and not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.